The reason I exist on earth at all is because of the practice of playing music for silent films. <laughs> because my grandfather was a pianist who uh, played with a silent film orchestra at a theater in New York, which is now Symphony Space. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. A rabbi who believes in tradition. His son who wants to go into showbiz. But it's not the movie from the 20s that you're thinking of. I talk with veteran silent film accompanist Donald Soson and klezmer revival figure Alicia Spiegels, now on tour and on Blu-ray and DVD with The Ancient Law from 1923. Be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And this being year three of this podcast, check out the pretty extensive archive of past guests and discussions at those places, too. You can also help us attract more listeners by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes. Trust me, you ain't heard nothing yet. So this is the first episode of 2019, and one of the things that happened this year, of course, is that works of art from 1923 went into the public domain on January 1st. One of my guests last fall was Ed LaRusso, who pioneered releasing silent films in professional editions via pre-sales on Kickstarter. In that episode, he hinted that he might have something new after January 1, and he does. Little Old New York, with Marion Davies and accompaniment by Ben Modell, another frequent guest here. The Kickstarter is live now, and you'll find the link for it and other things we talk about in the show post at nitrateville.com. Now, let the theater of the mind take you to a theater in Chicago last December. I'm at the Music Box Theater in Chicago. The curtain rises on the Deutsche Kinematek logo and a couple of titles explaining that the film that we're about to see, E.A. DuPont's The Ancient Law from 1923, was a long-lost film, finally reconstructed from half a dozen prints and the censorship records. And then... Sights and sounds of an older world are summoned. The world of a traditional Jewish village and its rabbi, and his son, who wants to go into the modern world of the Viennese court. 
where an actor can win favor and patronage at the highest levels. It's basically the story of the jazz singer four years later, but this version is richer and deeper in its evocation of historical Jewish life. And part of that comes from the score being performed live by Donald Sosin, a veteran silent film accompanist, and Alicia Spiegels, who back in the 80s helped start the Klezmer revival as co-founder of the New Wave era band, The Klezmatics. They're currently touring with The Ancient Law and perform their score on the Flickr Alley Blu-ray and DVD, out now. Before the Chicago show, I met them for lunch at Chicago's Big Jones, an acclaimed contemporary Southern restaurant. Here's our conversation. A few years ago, I was approached by a Jewish film and music festival in Washington, D.C. They wanted to commission me to write for The Yellow Ticket, which is a 1918 uh, Paula Negri film, her second film about a Jewish girl in a shtetl that wants to become a doctor and has to lead a double life in a brothel in St. Petersburg in order to do it. And it was the first time I've ever, I had ever really seen a silent film. Um, and I was completely smitten and spent a couple of months working on it and I was doing it in a vacuum. I didn't, I had, didn't know anybody who did it. I, I watched some films to see what I liked and didn't like and I wrote the score. And then my pianist at, uh, for, the, for the Yellow Ticket and I, Marilyn Lerner, we did it at the Port Sound Film Festival. And Donnie, who I had heard about, and uh, I knew he was like a you know, prolific silent film composer and improviser, um, he introduced himself right, at, right after the show and invited me to work on this project um, because I specialize in klezmer. That's, as a musician, that's what I do. Um, European Jewish folk music, uh, music of Yiddish-speaking Jews, and so Donnie had a, a Jewish-themed project, also a shtetl in Poland, and uh, he could tell you the rest of that, that story. So when you did a, your first score, I mean, the, the hard thing is not writing too much music, so you overwhelm the music, it seems to me. I mean, you're you're supposed to be accompanying. Was that, was that hard to, like, figure out how to... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did a lot of experimenting because I decided that I thought, well, I should have a, a purpose. I shouldn't just write music. I should have a, a kind of a prime directive that I will give myself. And I thought what, what I liked and didn't like about other silent film scores I saw was I liked the ones that made you feel like the film was just released now and you were a contemporary audience member and you really believed in it. And I didn't like the ones that pointed up its oldness for you by doing something detached from the action picture and you know that was creating an overall atmosphere and kind of made you think about how framed it. So it was like a picture within a picture. So I wanted to do something that would help a contemporary audience feel the feelings in the film, even though like the social mores and everything were actually different enough that it might be hard for us to identify with them, like sexual shame and you know things that were more current 100 years ago for people. So, um, so I wrote with an ear to feeling. I wanted to elicit emotions. And then I wanted to do it in a way that 
like when I would, when I, I wouldn't I would be playing in the dark, so no one would be looking at me, and I wanted the music to be playing in the dark in a way too, so you know it would kind of artfully disappear even though it was kind of conducting people's emotions, and and so I thought about that too. And you met? How'd you meet Donald? I, I did this first score at the Cordenone Silent Film Festival in Italy, and we met. Because uh, Don, Donald is there all the time, and you know has done 19 zillion scores, right. and so he he saw the show and introduced himself afterwards, and uh, it was an amazing, amazing stroke of luck for me. And for me. Now you, I know you like she said 19 gazillion, uh, gazillion scores. Um, how'd you get started? What what made you think this was a direction to go? You know, I didn't think it was a direction to go. It was just a kind of a whimsical, uh, serendipitous thing that happened in my dorm in Ann Arbor one night uh, back in 71, I think. And I had been playing ragtime in the Ramada Inn, I think, <laughs> at cocktail hour to make some money, and so I learned a few rags, and I was playing them in my dorm for for the uh, entertainment of whoever was in the dining hall that night, and things were winding down, and then somebody brought in a projector and a screen and a Laurel and Hardy movie, mm. and so I just kept playing, and I had no experience doing this, although I had played for dance classes. So I was used to watching people move around and make up stuff. And I liked playing by ear as well as playing all different kinds of music from years of piano lessons and studying some composition. And so uh, it was an interesting experience. And I told my composition teacher about it. He says, well, I've been asked to, uh, he was a great organist named William Albright uh, uh, and a ragtime pianist, which is why, how I got involved also. And he said, I've been asked to play for Phantom of the Opera over at the Cinema uh, Society. Why don't you do it? Because you already did this. I said, <laughs> okay, well, it's a lot different to play 90 minutes of Phantom of the Opera than to play for a two-reeler Laurel and Hardy. And so I uh, watched the film ahead of time. They had it on 16. And saw what was going on and realized that there was this music within the film. These days it's called diegetic music, which uh, is a very nice academic Jeopardy word. Um, and so I, I did some research, went to the music library and found the music from Faust uh, that matched what the dancers were doing and some of the singing. and. Uh, played some of that and the rest I made up and that led to playing for a lot of films on campus there was a regular uh, film film uh, film history program with screenings every night uh, many of them were silent and so I would sit down with the director of that program and he showed me Birth of a Nation and Intolerance and the Gold Rush and Broken Blossoms and Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd and all of this. And so that was my education. At the same time, I met uh, a man named William Perry, who sure. a lot of your listeners will know, who was doing the music for the PBS series, uh, Silent Years. And I wrote him a fan letter because I thought his work was great. I 
as I was just getting into this. And he was kind enough to write me a nice letter back and said, well, when you're back in New York, why don't we get together? And we did, we became friends. He started hiring me as his sub at MoMA. I didn't even know he played at MoMA at the time. And when he left MoMA, I took over. So I was very lucky to start at the top. So then you're you're just getting films a few days before, probably, to look at? And In those days, sometimes I wouldn't get to look at them ahead of time. I uh, have to do it. MoMA didn't always have time to let me screen the films, sometimes on a Steam Deck, or if uh, they had a, a maybe they had two screenings, and I was going to play one of them, and Bill was playing the first one, so I would go hear what he did. These days... Uh, there are digital screeners and they just send you a link and you watch them online. But in between, there was this time in the 90s when I was starting to play in Europe for the first time, when prints would come in from everywhere at the last moment, from Russia, from Poland, from, from uh, Sweden and Denmark, and nobody had time to make screeners uh, or give the pianists of which there were ten, maybe, uh, of whom there were ten, um, they couldn't accommodate us all. So a lot of us just developed the capacity to sit down and watch the film and, and play. Yeah. Um, I know Ben Modell has mentioned, you've played for a lot of Japanese film, Silence, yeah. uh, including the Criterion, the, the Silent Ozu dramas set, I think. Uh, I recorded... I recorded uh, three Ozu films in that set, and then I also recorded uh, a story of floating leads as a separate. Right. Um, well, I know he's mentioned Ozu in particular as you start playing for a comedy, and then all of a sudden it's it's a, a drama or a tragedy, yeah. and you kind of have to right. switch the audience with you real fast. It's difficult, yes. And doing it at sight, uh, you never know what's going to happen. I, there's a great Weiler film called The Shakedown, which needs to be restored uh, badly. Um, and if your listeners are interested, they can find it in an alternate version uh, on YouTube with Italian intertitles. Excellent. And it's a it's a second camera, huh. and looks great actually. Hmm. And what's what's available to to show from uh, in the U.S. doesn't the look US, as good. No, it doesn't. Uh, but the first time I saw that, I didn't know what was going to happen. And it's a setup. Mm -hmm. It's about a crooked boxer. Uh, to completely spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> Look into the flashy thing. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I didn't know. I was playing it as this kind of uh, noir. Right. <laughs> and it, it turns into something quite different. Another thing that can happen is... This is a Bill Perry story. He said he was playing some seafaring film and uh, there was a ship sailing quietly across the seas and he was playing something like Calm Seas and a Prosperous Wind. <laughs> and he had some trouble with the pedal and he looked down and then when he looked up, the ship was gone. <laughs> and he had... He hadn't paid any attention to it musically, you know, which is la da 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 da. And he found out after it that it had been torpedoed. <laughs> <laughs> so those are those are the hazards of doing things at sight. It keeps you on your toes. 
I noticed on your site it said you, you have like a thousand scores. If you play um, for something again, do you is it does it resemble it or you just played a thousand different movies? Well, I probably played four thousand different titles. Okay. Given you know a hundred gigs a year for forty years. Right. <laughs> um, now there's a lot of repeats now, obviously. Yeah. And yes, I do play some of the same material. I have many many notebooks filled with themes that go back to the seventies and some very complete scores for chamber ensemble and orchestra by this time. Um, mostly when I'm playing piano, I'm improvising on either earlier themes or just doing it fresh. Yeah. Because it's more fun. Yeah. Well, tell me about the film that you're doing tonight at the Music Box, The Ancient Law. Um, 1923, uh, DuPont directed it. Well, I'll tell you the genesis of how this project happened. Um, I had done a number of scores for Martin Kerber at Deutsche Kinematik, and he was in the process of restoring this film and came to me last year and said, would, would I be interested in scoring it? And we had a meeting with a woman named Cynthia Walk, who has taught uh, in the German department at University of California in San Diego, and she was funding all of this through a f private foundation that she has. Sunrise Foundation for Education and the Arts. And um, so the three of us uh, met and I found out about this restoration. Uh, I knew about the film because I played for a very bad looking print of it at Emory University maybe 10, 12 years ago. Um, it looked awful on the screen. It was dark, um, the titles looked bad, and the story didn't really cohere. Um, what they did in restoring the process was went back to the to the censor uh, certificates that had all the titles and so they were able to put the film together in its proper order and were also able to find really great material from around the world um, from Sweden from uh, from Germany and somewhere else uh, and so what's on the screen now and what's on the DVD that Deutsche Kinematek released in Europe and Flickr Alley released in the U.S. is a really gorgeous looking uh, piece of film. So Cynthia Walk, who has supported the restoration and, and the scoring, she wrote a really interesting article in an academic journal some years ago that I read um, about it. It's interesting to know the context because the film was made in Weimar, Germany, uh, when they were when the rumblings of anti-Semitism were just beginning. Right. Um, and of course, nobody knew, you know, how catastrophic right. that would become. But the film really addresses the anxieties of assimilated Jews. It's a story about. Uh, not assimilated Jews in Poland and a kind of narrative attempt at a reconciliation between that old culture which assimilated Jews in Vienna and Germany and those places felt very ambivalent about um, a reconciliation between that and assimilation on all sides of, of the, the issue like what is lost when you assimilate? What's, 
you know, what do you grieve for when you lose your culture? And what's gained? How much more open is your world? And uh, the, the film, it's not overt, like, um, you know, you, you watch some, you know, weirdly prescient things like, I guess, City of Jews and uh, Charlie Chaplin, the great dictator, right? And, you know, that's like a, you know, they have no idea how much farther it would go than pogroms and so forth. Um, but this is more like a question about, you know, it's about a way of life, it's about, I don't know, a very common issue when cultures meet and people move around and what happens. And, um, and it's frightening in its own way because of where we are now. Like, where are we now in this culture with all the, the racial hatred and the, you know, the resurgence of anti-Semitism? So I think the film is very relevant, but in a kind of artistic and subtle way. stole a lot of those ideas from Cynthia Ward. So. <laughs> well, you know, there's, you know, that obviously there's a period when so many cultures are going through some form of modernization. I mean, my own uh, ancestors were Mennonites who had a very similar experience mm. to the Jews because they went to Russia and were kicked out at the same time. Mm. You know, and basically, you think of them as like, it's just like Fiddler on the Roof, except Mennonites don't write musicals, you know? <laughs> So <laughs> that's a musical title. Yeah. Men and well, I still write right musicals. <laughs> and, and you should write one called Brad Time at the Ramada. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean those concerns of modernization obviously are just out there for, for many cultures and um, yeah, it'll be I haven't seen the film yet, but I'm interested to see you know how it how it talks about that. You know, one one generation is on the farm, and the next one is working in a university or you know, big business of some sort of the, in the modern day. So the other interesting thing about that is that the film was made in 1923, and it says it's a film about the 60s, or a film from the 60s. Yeah. And so here we are in in 2018, and it has the same relationship. When we think about the '60s today, this is the same same 60-year span. So it's set in the future. No, it's set in the 1860s. Oh, 1860s. Okay. So it's as far from that as we are from our 60s. From our 60s and all of the turmoil that went on then, and, and all of people trying to find their identity uh, in whatever social stratum they were in. Um, you know, the Jews Jews are living a life as a part in 1860 as the blacks are living in many parts of the South in 1960, right, bef right before uh, integration starts happening. And so if you think about what it would have been like for a black to try to get into white society, mm -hmm. uh, the difficulty of a black musician, for example, this film that's going around right now, The Green Book. The Green, Room, yeah. Green, Green Book. Yeah. Um, perfect case in point. You know, or or any of the the black bands that toured uh, and were not allowed to eat in the same restaurants. Um, the Jews were treated in the same way. Um, they were tolerated, uh, but you know they they weren't being uh, treated as as equals in any way. Right. Um, and that that's 
very pointedly uh, put across in the film. Also, what the, the film depicts in a very unflinching way is, uh, it seems they were very careful to be ethnographically accurate, and they, the film goes through a whole cycle of Jewish holidays through the year, and they really wanted to get the details right, and they did. And so what they depict is like a group of people who are very other from the surrounding culture. It's not like my Jewish community on the Upper West Side of New right. York. It's like this is you know, the real old world, the real thing, um, including the poverty. And uh, so, you know, it can, it, it's fascinating. And I think as uncomfortable as it was for assimilated Jews then, it's, it's going to be the same thing now. I think it could make assimilated Jews feel uncomfortable watching the movie. But it's so, so sort of medieval alien to gritty. their lives. Yeah, it's really gritty. Hmm. But lest we give the impression that this is just for Jewish audiences, <laughs> um, it's also a story about family conflict, which goes across cultures in the same way that Fiddler on the, on the Roof has. Well, yeah, I've seen people compare it to the jazz singer, the conflict between... The conflict is similar. Uh, I think it's a better film than the jazz singer. <laughs> Supposedly it was a source for the yeah. jazz Yeah, okay. it was four years earlier. Yeah. Um, it's a similar kind of story um, of combat between uh, two generations. Right. And Again, which is, to some degree, un a universal it's theme. It's very universal. And I think... The audiences that we played for um, around the U.S. and in Europe find it so, uh, and people react very, very positively and strongly. People come up to us literally weeping, Cheers. saying, yeah. "Saying, oh, this is my life up there." You know, huh. this dear man in Houston who came and just yeah. gave me a big hug and said, "You can't <laughs> imagine what this was like to watch this stuff. It's kind of a prodigal child story. It's we don't know what kind of music was played for it at the time, but. Uh, Alicia, when I when I met her and invited her into this project, um, you know the, the reason that I thought she would be a perfect match for the film was because she has this great backlog of uh, Jewish uh, music that she can draw on in creating her own backlog of, of Jewish themes that she can draw on and creating her own music, as well as adapting pre-existing Jewish music. Um, so we sat down and um, actually you, you came to the studio with some tunes that you had written already. Yeah. Um, I like to compose what I call fake lore, which is new music that sounds like old Jewish traditional music. Um, and over the years I've added a number of these melodies to the repertoire. So I came in for this film with some new Nigunim, which are Hasidic wordless songs, um, a new 
dance tune for the holiday of Purim, which happens in the spring. Um, new klezmer tunes and uh, quasi-vocal numbers, cantorial-sounding music. Um, I also wrote a fake uh, Viennese waltz. <laughs> I mean, it's a real Viennese waltz, but I'm a fake Viennese. And <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the real fun? Sometimes just <laughs> imitating and completely ripping off the things you like and, and saying, hey, I, I could have done one of them too. Yeah, I could have, and I did actually. Yeah. So, And I like to continue those traditions because they're beautiful. I, you know, that They can generate a lot of music. They're an idea, a generative idea that can keep going and going. Um, also, I, one of the things that tickled me about starting to play and compose and improvise silent film music is that uh, it turned out after I got my first commission that uh, the reason I exist on earth at all is because of the practice of playing music for silent films <laughs> because my grandfather was a pianist who uh, played with a silent film orchestra at a theater in New York which is now Symphony Space on oh, the wow. Upper West Side I live around the corner from there, and that's how he met my grandmother. So, playing for silent film, he met my grandmother, and they got married, and here I am <laughs> in Chicago with Donald Simpson. Fantastic story. <laughs> I don't have a story like that, but my grandmother was in a silent film in 1912. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's called The Gang Leaders Reform. If mm. anybody out there, I've posted this on Nitrate Bill, I don't, <laughs> I don't expect it's going to come waltzing in my front door anytime soon. It was re released by Yankee Films in 1912. I'm sure it's long gone the way of so many other right. films of that period. What does she play? Oh, I don't know. Would you recognize her? If we I would recognize her if I ever saw the film. Yeah, I have pictures of her from that time. All right, we got to find this film. I showed, <laughs> the I showed, search is on. Yeah, I showed you. I showed you that picture, didn't I, in our house when you came that time to practice? It's a very sort of like vampy picture looking. Mm. I'll, I'll make a scan of it and show it to you. So cool. You're playing piano, right? I'm playing keyboard. keyboard. Uh, sometimes uh, on the DVD, I added a lot of other things a cello, a clarinet, all synthesized. Um, or sampled digital samples, good right. good sound examples. A marching band, an orchestra. Um, what else did we have in there? I think that's about it. A um, clock. A <laughs> clock. No, there's no clock sound. Oh, <laughs> I heard a clock. You could have put a clock. You're virtuoso on the clock. I am. Clock and But in live performance, it's mostly piano. Sometimes I put an accordion in the in the computer and and MIDI that. Um, so we have a, a, uh, a semblance of what that would have sounded like with folk instruments. Yeah. And I play the violin, the klezmer fiddle in particular, although I also play classical style and a number of styles. Well, that's what I was wondering. Does, is the division of labor pretty much you play sort of the accompaniment and she plays the kind of old-time Jewish music, or is it not nearly that neat? It's much more... It's, it's every possible combination. Okay. Yeah. Thing. Well, Sometimes so. I'm accompanying her in playing the tunes that she has written. Sometimes um, we are playing material that we're improvising on the spot together. Sometimes we're playing a waltz by Johann Strauss, 
Um, and uh, sometimes we're playing my transcription of what we made up in the studio, and then improvising on top of that. So it's, it's really a very fluid kind of uh, musical experience. And we revise it. Every performance yeah, is every different, performance like, is different. like slow plays. And there's also some audience participation that I'm not going to give away. <laughs> okay. But, time. but they like it. Well, yeah, let's talk about the Music Box for a minute. So you come to all these different venues. Um, I don't know, have you played at the Music Box before? No, I've never been in there. I walked in here this morning, and Dennis Scott, the house organist, was busy um, with the installation of this new uh, console. Right. A Kimball console, an older one, but so they're hooking that up through MIDI uh, to the pipe work right. in the theater and getting everything set up and voicing it and so forth. It's a long process, and he has a concert to play on Friday, so that's going <laughs> to be something. But I sat down and played a little bit. That was fun. So he could go out into the house and hear how it sounds. It's a beautiful theater. Yeah, no, I, I'm very fortunate to live near it. And uh, what, Do you know what year it's from? It's, I think it was right around 1930. There, if you saw just up the street, there's something called the Mercury Theater. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the neighborhood house that the Music Box basically put out of business when it opened. And it then people forgot that that was a theater it was like a bowling alley and there was like a floor over the rake of the floor and stuff like that mm-hmm. but the music box yeah, has a gorgeous atmospheric style theater you know, Spanish garden or whatever mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know has been running you know went through all the things that theaters go through you know I'm sure it showed porn in the 70s or whatever mm-hmm. uh, but it's been beautifully restored and shown mm-hmm. you know as an art house theater in Chicago for many years mm-hmm. so yeah, very lucky to have theaters like that still around. So what was the history of the film? It was reasonably successful in its time. Then what happened to it, do you know? Well, I think like a lot of films, it just was put aside. Um, it wasn't... Uh, I don't think it was shown much. There was a restoration done in 1984, but they didn't have access to the censor card and so it wasn't a um, a completely successful restoration. And if any of the restorations done at that time have have been eclipsed by the digital restorations that can really clean things up and make them look as pristine as they did in many cases. Right. Yeah, so. that's what I was feel is like I would not. I could not get into silent film. I couldn't watch the films that got me into silent film now. The, the murky 16 millimeter yeah. prints that I saw when I was a kid. Right. I've just been too spoiled by yeah. you know, what, what people are capable of restoring. I mean, I, you know, I watch them, but I, I'm also not one of these people that has big audiophile speakers all over my house. <laughs> you know, I can enjoy listening to a Mahler symphony on my phone right. because I'm listening to the info. I'm not listening to the sound. You know, that actually, that's pretty typical of musicians. All no. the musician, professional musicians I know have really cheap audio. They don't right fetishize right. it? like No, no. they can make the, yeah. you know, the transition in their head. Yeah. <laughs> but I, the music wouldn't bother me. The, you know, I, I love listening to, you know, pre-electronic, or, yeah. you know, pre-electric recording, you know, things if they're right. good. 
Um, but the the image would wear it me down hard, after. It's a while. hard to watch Caligari on an old beat up right sixteen, <laughs> which was all that was available in those days. It was really awful, and now I mean we have these gorgeous yeah. uh, restorations of that Nosferatu. Or, you know, Pretty much everything except the shakedown. Yeah. <laughs> and Lady of the Pavements is a, a Griffith's last silent film, which is desperately in need of restoration. And Evangeline, desperately in need of restoration. There's only a couple of prints of these left in the world. Right. And uh, it's it's really time for somebody to get behind that. I think Universal has the shakedown on its list. Okay. I've talked to them. They know about it. They know of my interest. My wife and I have been doing it here and there for many years, but it would be nice to see it with or without the Italian second camera, just to see it look the way uh, it was intended to be shown. So what else, what are some other favorites that that you've played for, that that you really like to do? Well, the list goes on and on and on. I'm going to, I mean, this is going to... Your listeners who are very versed in silent film, right? Yeah. So Safe I'll mention, I, you know, I, I can mention the usual suspects, but I would like to champ, champion films they may not have seen. Sure. Unless they go to Bologna or they go to Portanone. Uh, recently, in the past couple of years, all the Fescu's films, uh, Les Miserables and Monte Cristo, were shown, and they are fantastic, fantastic late 20s French epics. Um, Les Mis is six hours long, and it's really slow and detailed, and it's it's just wonderful. And Neil Brand did an amazing score in Portanoni that lasted all day with some mm-hmm. food breaks. And then uh, the yeah, I haven't seen those. I know there's versions online. I'm not going to watch six hours of Les Mis on uh, no, online. it's not the same. You have to just. It's like going to see Nicholas Nickleby in the theater <laughs> for seven hours, which I did twice, and now I'm watching it on my computer and it you know the phone rings and <laughs> right yeah um, it's not the same but it's great that it was perver- preserved because that that is also you know video preservation is another whole thing which is very important um, and some of the early videos have disappeared when in fact they they ought not to have yeah. um, getting back to film uh, the Monte Cristo of Fescour is fantastic um, I, I like playing for the Fuyad serials, like the uh, um, the uh, Barabbas and um, uh, the uh, the Maison. What is that? Oh. I'm blanking on that. Maison du Mystère. Maison du Mystère. Thank yeah. you. With Mujukin. Um some of the the Russian films I mentioned, House on Trubnaya Square and uh, Girl with a Hat Box. Are wonderful films, also of course, Potemkin and Strike and Earth and uh, other Ukrainian films. You didn't play for the Burnett films at Telluride many years ago, did you? Mm, if they like were like in the mid '80s. No, I okay. didn't. No, the first film I played for Telluride was <laughs> The Shakedown. Oh, okay. And then Hell's Hinges, uh, Hell's Heroes, not Hell's Hinges. Yeah. Hell's Heroes, another Wilder film. Yeah. Uh, played for Spies, which is a great film. Uh, Hands Up, a Raymond Griffith comedy I did with my wife doing percussion and uh, vocal sound effects. What's Um, interesting, the screening of the two Barnett films, uh, Girl with a Hat Box and House on Patrick Night School Street, it was the last thing we watched the second time we went to Telluride. Really? Last show. 
And, you know, I had gone thinking that I mainly wanted to go see hot new movies, you know, or the things that are about to open and all that. Last thing we see these two Barnett films, and I love them. And I never went back to Telluride because I realized I wasn't really interested in seeing, you know, whatever Miramax was going to release a week later. I wanted to see The Silence, and I wanted to see the older films. And so it put me more toward attending the kind of festivals where they do oh. play those sorts of things. Have you come to San Francisco? I haven't. Oh, you really that. should come to oh. the Castro. I mean, it's a okay. great theater. It's a great space. The audience is fantastic there. It's a scene. We, we did this <laughs> film there in June. We had 800 people standing up and cheering afterwards. It was, uh, it was just wonderful. Uh, they do wonderful programming. Anita Monger and Stacy Wisnia and Rob Byrne are a terrific team. Uh, they restore films, they promote them well, they present them well, and uh, it's it's really a wonderful festival. People dress up, cosplay. <laughs> I'm sure, really yeah. <laughs> now, I've mostly been to the ones in like small towns in Ohio, because uh-huh. uh, there's nothing to distract you there. Right. <laughs> How about Syracuse? Have you been there? Uh, yeah, I never got to it before it shut down, no, but I've been, I've been to Capitol Fest in Rome and things right. like that, so... Oh, were you there the year that they showed the Brown Derby? No. That's a fun film. I don't, I don't remember that who's. It's a, a fun comedy about it. It's, it's like the American version of the Italian straw hat. The, uh, this, okay. This film, it's, and it stars a comedian that your listeners will know, and I'm blanking on him. Um, you'll, get, you'll get letters. To okay. Don't you know that? I'm on my okay. phone. Um, I'm looking it up right now. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you know, it's like last year, it's, uh, I mean, Capital Fest is really well run. They show 35 very nicely. Uh, a couple different people play, including Phil Carley. And they... Um, in Rome? Yeah, in Rome, New York. Rome, New York. Oh. Sorry, <laughs> yes. You have to know which Rome you're talking about here. Um, but um, this year they showed a couple of... Uh, Samuel Goldwyn produced... Okay, Google is trying to make me look up the Brown Derby restaurant and Brown Derby drink instead. Um, uh, Raymond uh, Ronald Coleman starring vehicles, and they're fantastic. Mm. I've never seen no, literally there was like no comment on one of them on the IMDb or anything. So we were like the must have been the first people to see it called the Rescue, a version of a Joseph Conrad uh, novel. But uh, you know, really terrific films and beautiful 35 prints. I mean, you think of not that much Goldwyn stuff surviving, but the stuff is in great shape. It had one little missing section, but nothing that a good, you know, that a title didn't take care of. And, uh, you know, it just kind of showed me there's always more out there. If you've seen 4,000, if you've played for 4,000 Silence, there's always more out there. There's a lot out there. There's Chinese films. With, um, That's right, you played... Was a video release of the Peach, the Peach Girl, Peach Girl, um, um, the Goddess, um, Spray of Plum Blossoms, Beat, Beat, Beat. I don't know. There's, there were. I did a series of twelve of them at the Guggenheim Museum in New York one year. Um, Beautiful films. A number of them starred. Uh, the great Ruan Lin Yu, who right. was the like the un- most unbelievably famous silent film star in China, and a half a million people came to her funeral when she committed suicide <gasps> at the age of 24, oh, I think. Sort of hounded by her fans. Yeah. Really. 
they kept hounding her and and I've played for some of those films in China which was really wonderful wow. there's a an older Chinese actress named Qin Yi who married the Rudolph Valentino of China named Qi Yan who was much younger than uh, much older than than she was um, this was back what, in the 40s or okay. so he's gone but she's still there and she came to San Francisco and was so uh, you know taken with the, the festival atmosphere that she said she would start a festival in Shanghai so uh, a colleague of mine Gunter Buchwald who plays at festivals all over the place uh, uh, including the Castro and Portanoni he and I went to Shanghai for a few days and played for a number of films there both American and Chinese films and that was just extraordinary mm. so is there film appreciation really there oh yeah well, I mean Shanghai was a great cultural right. center in the 20s was like the Hollywood of the East and everybody um, not even I'm not just talking of the film industry but the town in general was very cosmopolitan the whole Chinese jazz and you see it in the films you see people dressing in, in Paris, Parisian you know fashions uh, and they wanted to be very westernized and of course all that went out the window uh, in 49 wasn't so it also a refuge for Holocaust survivors? It, yes, it was, and for also Russians who came through after the revolution. I mean, I, my piano teacher, for example, uh, lived in China for a while because she was from the aristocracy. Mm. Um, her father was the head of the St. Petersburg Conservatory, Alexander Serrati, mm. and they had to get out fast. He was a baron. Mm. Um, wound up teaching at Juilliard. So China was a was a big film center. Uh, Japan also with Uzu and Narusei and uh, Shimizu in those days. But people now appreciate that they have a film history that goes back that far. Well, they're I mean they they're taking steps to restore the films. Um, uh, a film, for example, one of her greatest films, Ramanu, is called Love and Duty, and. Um, that's been restored. Uh, it's on DCP now. Although I think that comes from Taiwan. Okay. That that one does. <coughs> the other ones are are being shown, and they, I think they recognize that they that's part of their culture. Okay. You know they're not as far communist as North Korea. Right. <laughs> you should bring the ancient laws of Shanghai. Are people aware of the Jewish history of Shanghai? In Shanghai. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Should talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, tell me about the tour with this film. How'd that come about? We worked the, <laughs> the email. We're in the so middle of it. it. You put it together yourselves? You just contacted all these venues? Mostly ourselves, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting for universities in particular. So we find that film departments and German studies departments and music will uh, go in on it together and co-present it. Uh, we bring it to synagogues. Uh, 
also art, movie theaters that show silent films, and it really, as a program, it works in a variety of settings. So JCCs, uh, performing arts centers that have film capability, and we just write people, and if we, you know, if we find the right people, they're very excited about it. Okay. This is the first thing that you've really done like this, touring with the same film? to a lot of different venues. This is what I did with the Yellow Ticket. So you did, okay. So I'm kind of doing what I did again and, and booking it. And uh, what about you? Yeah, my wife who sings on a lot of the shows that I do and plays percussion, her name is Joanna Seaton, and we've recorded. Uh, we've never done a tour like this in that way. We've gone out and done one-offs um, or done several films. Uh, I mean, we, we all ended up at at AFI Silver in Silver Spring, Maryland in November. Uh, Alicia and I were there on a Thursday doing um, Angel Law, and then Joanna and I did screenings at Seven Chances and Rex Ingram's Mara Nostrum. So we'll go out and do a a weekend or something like that, Um, but not take one one film around, uh, like the Alloy Orchestra, for example, will go out uh, with Strike or or with... uh, I think just here in camera, they played. Um, they were doing a Brigitte Helm film, weren't they? Yeah, I don't remember now. I didn't manage to go to it. It was, I think it was like, I think it was around Halloween. It's just like too much, too much at home. I've come up with the answer to the, uh, the star Brown Derby. Of the Brown Derby and a 1926 American silent comedy directed by Charles Hines and starring Johnny, Johnny Hines, Ruth Dwyer, and Edmund Breeze. There we go. The young plumber inherits a Brown Derby hat from his uncle, which is said to bring good luck to its owner. So see that if you can. <laughs> okay. Donald has a whole silent film family. So I had my grandfather, but Donald's children play for silent films too, <laughs> oh, nice. and sometimes the whole true. family does it. That's right? true. Yes, yeah. Our son is twenty nine, and he uh, I think he um, had his first silent film performance experience in the now defunct Fulgore Theater in Bologna, um, doing monkey noises for the Elmo Lincoln <laughs> Tarzan, <laughs> and then our eight year old daughter did monkey noises when it was shown in Bologna two years ago. Um, and now she's also had some experience playing percussion and doing uh, barking dogs for the dog in Speedy and um, other other percussion things as, as the films were on. You're ready for so, vaudeville. You should have <laughs> the whole family. That's it. To all talking, all singing. You can play, play Lompoc and <laughs> Provo and all the baseball. <laughs> we'll party like it's 1910. Yeah. Really? <laughs> now, what are your favorite films? Oh, my. That's... that's I mean, I love Buster Keaton. Who doesn't love Buster Keaton? Um, I don't know what else. Uh, I've been really interested in Japanese films, but some of that was just serendipity of how many of them were on Filmstruck before oh. it died. So I was just watching, uh, you know, Naruse, who had not seen much, it was any of almost. Um, and Japanese Girls at the Harbor. Which one? Japanese Girls at the Harbor. That's I didn't see that one, no. That wasn't on there. It's on, it's on Criterion. Okay. Um, so yeah, I've been catching up with a lot of that. I mean, I really, the Ozus I've always liked since seeing 
I was born, but years and years ago, mm-hmm. and just that switch, like we were talking about, from you know, sort of lighthearted, almost you know, our gang comedy to yeah. a deeper family drama. Yeah. You know, it's just like oh, you could do that in a movie. Wow, right? Um, I don't know. It's, I'm interested in that, but I mean, I, I have. I suppose it's good for Nitrateville and stuff like that that I have very generalist tastes. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of the guys who's on there going, "We're not talking enough about Rene Adore." <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, but speaking of speaking of that switch, I was watching Liar Liar on HBO the other night, and it's the same kind thing. of thing. It's hysterically funny, and then you get this real animosity between the husband and the wife, you know, that that comes and fuels the comedy because he's because there's no reason for him to do what he's doing without that struggle to to get the family back. If you weren't invested in it emotionally, thank you. Right. Then then who would care? Then it would just be an Adam Sandler movie. Right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, I'm I'm pretty much game for anything. And I, one of the things I like about going to festivals is not knowing what's going to be there. Uh-huh. And just, you just watch it, and yeah. it happens. And sometimes you're amazed. Now, have you been to the Nitrate Festival, Mr. Nitrate Festival? No, I should. I know. <laughs> I this haven't either. It's the same weekend as the Denver Silent Film Festival, oh. and I'm one of their guys there. Oh, okay. And that's an interesting experience, because we always take a bunch of students from the University of Colorado in Denver and have them, uh, either me or my wife and me, or uh, with their wonderful percussion teacher, Todd Reed, uh, we take a group of students, maybe four of them, maybe 30 of them, and we watch a feature film and make up our own score in three days. Oh, nice. Uh, And some of them are not gonna be professional musicians, uh, and they play everything from standard instruments to laptops and uh, Monkey noises, probably. Mm, not generally monkey noises. No, but more and more, they're into electronics. Sure. Uh, we had some great guitarists last year, and we did Faust. Um, it was wonderful. Uh, we've done The Unholy Three and Nosferatu, Caligari, uh, Berlin Symphony of the City. Yeah. Uh, and for them, most of them, it's their first experience watching silent film and they really get into it. Well, you know, I showed when I was doing a program in Wichita at a museum many, many years ago, uh, and just stealing music to play along with it. Um, at the point where it's where like all the machines come out in Berlin Symphony or City or whatever, you know, I put on some Philip Glass music and I, I got 50 comments that were like, I really enjoyed this up until the moment when. <laughs> well, but you could have just as well played Varese, you know, or yeah. George Antile, uh, and it would have been. But that's the music of the period, so. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, look at what you're looking at on the screen. It's really this is the moment when that's happening, so it's not inappropriate at all. So thank you. Sweets too. Dessert just uh-huh. menu just arrived. Thank you. Um, what was I thinking of? Um, ballet mechanique. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that the original score for that is so loud and it's so cacophonous. And I did it at the Whitney. I was playing for uh, a screening of uh, Salome, follow, right following this. And a, a guy named Paul uh, Lehrman had restored 
the, the Antile score in MIDI and have four Steinway grands uh, MIDI'd up, or player pianos or something, and all this percussion, and he had a quadraphonic speaker setup <laughs> in a hall about as big as this restaurant, <laughs> and I had to flee. Oh I just, my God. But I mean, that was the intention. It was, yeah. it was a Dadaist right. film, it was, a, it was Dada music, and it was intended to just make the audience go berserk. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they should they probably should have used it in Guantanamo or something. <laughs> God forbid. Strike that from the record. Yeah. <laughs> no Guantanamo jokes no Guantanamo on Nitrate Bill. <laughs> I'll, I'll say in all sincerity that the best point uh, best part of touring around like this um, is meeting people. Um, whether uh, like this people that I've always wanted to meet or people that come up after the film uh, laughing their heads off or with tears in their eyes saying I was so touched by where I didn't know anything about silent film and my eyes have been open and my ears have been open. That's uh, a really great thing and, and both my wife and I um, feel the same way about this when we're going and, and you know it's, it's a uh, it's kind of an evangelistic thing to, to be out there spreading the message about silent film to a, a world which is, in mo for the most part, completely unaware of right. what's out there. Tell me about the rest of your career aside from silent film. You, are, you have a, a huge career as the world's leading klezmer violinist. What is that like? Well, I uh, started that in 1987 or so, resurrecting what had been the quintessential Jewish musical instrument tradition, the fiddle, the same one that is alluded to in Fiddler on the Roof and that Mark Chagall painted. Uh, I would listen to old 78s and uh, transfer to cassette tapes. They could be slowed down to half speed and I could decode wow. what the heck they were doing to make those crazy sounds. So what kind of instruments were they playing? They, they played fiddles, brass instruments that they picked up when they were conscripted into the Tsar's army. They played the cymbal, which was a Jewish version of the bigger gypsy cymbal, something you could flee with when the pogrom came, a portable version. Uh, but the fiddle was really the chief instrument. So in the 80s, I figured out how they made those sounds. It sounded like a cantor singing. And uh, I formed my band at the time, the Cosmetics, and we did kind of rock and roll versions. I think versions. I have a Cosmetics oh, album do? from way back when. I'm on it then. <laughs> yeah, I think I think I heard about it on NPR, and I couldn't figure out how to spell it for a long time. Oh wow! In the pre-internet uh, days, so I finally found a record store oh, where they gosh. knew what I was talking about. It's like clamors music or something. Oh, you know, that's so. great. Um. Yeah, I was with the band for 17 years, and then I went off on my own, and I, I just released uh, my second Klezmer fiddle album, which uh, focuses, you know, completely on the fiddle. Um, and wherever we go with the ancient law, uh, I try to add a Klezmer workshop. Local people who are interested can have me come teach instrumentalists to play Klezmer. Um, I give private lessons wherever we go, Klezmer Fiddle. Uh, Donnie also gives workshops, uh, local Yeah, we'll be doing this in Kentucky mm -hmm. in March. Uh, I'll, my, my wife and I do workshops for students, or f uh, both film and music students, in 
how to write music for silent films. Uh, sometimes they participate, sometimes it's more of a lecture demo. Um, so and, uh, it's a lot of fun. We love teaching, I think, all of us. And I'll do a house concert. Sometimes we do the film, and then the next night I'll do a house concert where it's like a one-woman show. And I, I also sing in Yiddish, so I'll sing and play and accompany myself. So that's part of our tours, too, are these extra things that people who know we're coming will contact us and ask. And there are a number of other films, uh, Jewish films, that have violins in them. Humoresque, maybe the most famous, but also Breaking Home Ties. So we'll probably add those to our repertoire yeah. at some point and, yeah. and use, uh, of course, the famous Humoresque by Dvorak and write our own music. Uh, what is Breaking Home Ties? Breaking Home Ties, you know, um, I can't give you the information about it. Uh, it's from the Brandeis collection, is the source of the print. And uh, Rosa Rosanova, is she in that? Or I'm thinking of something else. Um, so it's a Yiddish for the a, Yiddish it's audience? It was made in America um, about Russian Jews who emigrate to the United States. It's very sentimental. Um, one of the main characters is a violinist. He gets in a fight and his violin is broken. And yeah. It happens to us all the time. I swear to God, if I break another violin in a fight, I'm going to switch to the flute. That's, that, yeah, that's why they call you Brawlin' Alicia. <laughs> yeah, that's what they call me. My new album is called Baragovsky Suite. It's based on music collected by a guy named Baragovsky who went around recording pleasure musicians in the 1920s and 30s in the Ukraine. Oh, nice. Um, so we, I took those tunes and with a jazz pianist we arranged them with more kind of contemporary arrangements. Uh, AliciaSpiegels.com. You um, got a. I'm OldMovieMusic.com. And what do I have coming out? Uh, in November 2018, the Women Film Pioneers was released by Kino Lorber and a. Uh, my wife and I wrote a score for a film called Call of the Cumberlands and two little shorts. One of them is by Alice Guy Blachet. Um, my Frankenstein, the, the old Edison Frankenstein, is up on the Library of Congress website. Um, what else? I have some other projects I can't talk about yet, <laughs> but watch my website. They'll be announced eventually. Uh, the, I don't know how, how well it did but the Criterion Olympics set that came out a year ago was really a stunning project to get to work on. I was very lucky uh, to be involved with that and scored um, the Paris Olympics and the Stockholm Olympics uh, of 1924 and 1912, respectively. Just amazing that all of that exists and that it looks so beautiful. I mean, some of it looks like it was shot yesterday. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. <laughs>
Thanks to my guests, Donald Sosin and Alicia Spiegels, to Flickr Alley, whose Blu-ray and DVD release of The Ancient Law, featuring the Deutsche Kinematek restoration and music by my guests, is out now. And last but certainly not least, to Chef Paul Fairbach and Big Jones Restaurant in Chicago for a delicious lunch. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to follow the link in the show post at nitrateville.com to Donald's site to see if they're bringing The Ancient Law to a venue near you. It's well worth seeing them perform it live. And remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave us a rating or a review at iTunes. I'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year. I will take, take a look at that. I'm going to run to the restroom real quick. Who's listening? Hello. We're talking about you, Mike. <laughs> you disappeared for a moment, but we're talking about you. What a great interviewer you are. And how kind of you to invite us uh, on our tour to come and have lunch with you. And It'll be a surprise when you come back and you review this recording to find us talking about you in glowing terms. <laughs> no, seriously, it's and really great. Lunch is delicious. We're so happy to be here at Big Jones. I'll, I'll